Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. My name is Miss Perry Neam. I'm joined in the studio with our lovely training wheels. Good morning. She's doing the panels, pressing the buttons, doing all the things. And Dr. Patient. Good yeah. morning. It's so nice to have you back. We Long haven't time we've no missed see. you. Hauled myself back into the studio after a very long time. A little hiatus. Yeah. yeah. But it's nice to have you with us. Thank you. We have a pretty interesting show, I'm hoping. We're going to talk all things brains today in a bit of a sort of odd way. We've got um, two guests coming on. One who I'm hoping will join us on Zoom very soon um, is the lovely Liz Dawes, who is the CEO of a charity called Connors Run, which is the RCD Foundation. Um, And they're a charity that I personally total conflict of interest here but have been working with for 10 years and I think is a pretty amazing charity personally. They work in paediatric brain cancer um, raising funds for research and for families and they do a really good job of that so hopefully we'll have Liz join us on uh, on Zoom very soon and then we have Professor Jeffrey Rosenfeld coming on a little later to talk about his current research into penetrative injuries in the brain and what that looks like. So we're talking things like bullets and shrapnel and the management and treatment of that, um, which will be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, you know, we're talking all things brains from lots of different, lots of different standpoints today. Different but, angles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But first, why don't we do some news? Absolutely. Sounds good. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. All righty. Do you want to go first, Dr. Patient? Absolutely. Why not? So, uh... This article, again, let's dive straight into the brain. A team of Monash University researchers mapped the brains of nearly 1,300 people living with one of six kinds of mental illness. The team mapped over 1,000 regions of each brain to assess size and volume to determine deviation in scale. Now, I'm going to see if I can get this title right. Uh, The title of it was Regional Circuit and Network Heterogeneity of Brain Abnormalities in Psychiatric Disorders. PhD student Ashley Siegel, a part of the team leading research, said existing research on the relationship between brain size and a diagnosed mental illness was not indicative of a person's specific circumstances. Because the brain is a network, dysfunction in one area can spread to affect other connected sites. We found that while deviations occurred in distinct brain regions across different people, they were often connected to common upstream or downstream areas, meaning they aggregated within the same brain circuits. It's possible that this circuit level overlap explains commonalities between people with the same diagnosis, such as why two people with schizophrenia generally have more symptoms in common than a person with schizophrenia and one with depression. So we confirmed earlier findings that the specific brain regions show large deviations in brain volume vary a lot across individuals, with no more than 7% of people with the same diagnosis showing a major deviation in the same brain area. So the research team lead, Professor Alex Fornato, said the framework we've developed allows us to understand the diversity of brain changes in people with mental illness at different levels, from individual regions through to more widespread brain circuits and networks, offering a deeper insight into how the brain is affected in individual people. So that's a lot. Fascinating. But fascinating. I'm lost. Can you give me a one... Is the summary... Brain structure was different for people and didn't necessarily correlate with their mental health diagnosis? That was my understanding, that there was only a 7%... um, So that they confirmed that earlier findings, that specific brain regions showing large deviations in volume vary a lot across individuals, but with no more than 7% of people with the same diagnosis showing a major deviation Mm. in the same brain Mm. area. Mm. So Yeah, so it sounds like basically the volume doesn't change, but the connected pathways are similar, and that's more common with particular pathologies of mental health. 
they that, can that they can trace yep. versus than the actual volume of the brain. That was kind of my layperson understanding. It's really as well. interesting. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's, fascinating stuff. It's such a um, a tricky part of mental health psychiatry as a field is that we don't have diagnostic tests. Mm. You know, the diagnostic yeah. rationale is a book. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's not a very good book at the yeah. best of times. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't quite hit the mark. Um, so there's a lot of research going into these sorts of things. Is there some hard and fast test like a blood test or, you know, a brain exactly. scan that can say this is what you have and this is the medication that will help you? Mm. And um, it's been a long time, but mm. we're still... We're not quite getting there. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we're not. Yeah. I know for a very long time people were hoping that functional MRIs would be that. They'd be able to sort of look at at how the brain was functioning and I wonder whether these neural pathways in terms of how things are linking mm. is heading down that way in terms of, you know, a, a questionnaire that then drives a, a diagnostic scan. Yeah, there is emerging evidence with functional MRI in certain conditions that the connectivity is um, altered in certain brain regions that can be the same across different diagnoses in... Uh, sorry, across different people with the same diagnosis. So, as you've said, it's less a structure or brain volume issue more a connection yeah. thing we, you know, that I think that yeah there is some promise there but I mean part of me is sort of skeptical I think human experience is maybe a bit too complicated to yeah. have this is a diagnosis this is your you know what's wrong with you in I, there's commas. so many clinical part like I see so many you know hard and fast diagnosis kind of things and you go nothing's ever quit, really yeah. clear cut like it's never really as simple as you think it's going to be mm. the 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 one thing that i found recently is what is a person's subjective level of trauma mm-hmm. for oh, to totally. move from 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 a just a mental health issue to a complex mental health diagnosis but subjective trauma in, on everything right because I, I i treat people in pain and pain subjectively skews everything yeah. so it's always really really interesting to take that into consideration when you're looking at a clinical picture yeah That's and when you say subjective trauma doctor patient i think correct me if you're i'm wrong but what? it's like Something happens, but trauma is actually how you respond to yeah, exactly. that event, yeah. not, necessarily, not necessarily what's happened to you. So it's not like a competition of I've had worse experiences than someone else. Yeah. It's how has my brain and my body reacted to the experiences exactly. I've had. Even compartmentalising the idea of on a scale of 1 to 10, mm-hmm. you know, what is that subjective nature of, of just an experience? A person gets hit in the head with a rock. How much does it hurt? Mm-hmm. You know, a person gets subjected to all kinds of mental trauma. How much does it hurt? Mm-hmm. Based upon your life experience to get you to that point. Yep, exactly that's right. That's been a fascinating one for the mm, past. Uh, amazing. Yeah. Yep. Thanks for that, Dr. Patient. It's a good one. Sure. I've got some, well, it's not new news, but I think it's very topical. We've all, as a nation, taken on board the Matildas. We were very devastated <laughs> last night. Oh. And, you know, being a physio, I feel extra connected to the sporting world. But I thought for those out there who might have been watching a bit of the pregame and looking at all of those kinds of things, um, you might have noticed that all of the teams do a very particular set of warm-up exercises mm. before the game. And for those who aren't in the know, this is actually a really well-researched like, program. It's called the FIFA 11 Plus, and it was designed in the 90s as basically a set of 11 exercises plus the plus, which I love, is about good sportsmanship behaviour on the you know, which may, oh, so maybe sweet. we might say Marvelous. that there are certain teams who have not been demonstrating that. <laughs> England. Um, <laughs> however, however, it, it's a it's a group of exercises that have been proven. Quite a lot of research has gone into this that it reduces the impact of injuries in not only gameplay. As the initial research said, said that the initial um, reduction in, in gameplay injuries was 11.5%, but in training-based injuries was t- almost 25%. Okay, I'm on the edge of my seat. What are these exercises? Because yeah, I want to do them every morning. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> they're really simple. So you would, have the front door. <laughs> you would have seen the girls doing them. They don't require any a- actual um, activity, but things like those leg swings that you see oh, the girls uh-huh. doing, some working with walking lunges, oh. working around those, and they focus 
on the main key areas of of injury in the sport, so things like ankle strength, knee injuries, um, hamstring eccentric work, um, and reducing the the likelihood of of those injuries on field. And it's it's a really interesting program. But I think if anyone grassroots out there has gone, you know what, I want to get into soccer. I'm keen on this. It's great. Have a look for the FIFA 11 plus warm-up because if you're at a grassroots level they're really easy exercises to do and it it massively Im- it reduces the risk of injury are they helpful for things like running i'm asking for a friend yeah i mean <laughs> i i argue i think one of the things that they're really good at is it's it's a really comprehensive lower body warm-up system mm. and it's not it doesn't take a lot of time mm. it takes 10 to 15 minutes to do and you don't need any exercise so if this is what you're doing as your warm-up there are worse things that you could be doing right. so right. it's a really interesting thing and kids can do it it's super easy so highly recommend if you've been loving the tillies and and getting into it have a little look at the FIFA 11 plus and, and see if you can plus. you can right. add it into your life in a way. Oh, I like that. And then the other thing I wanted to give a quick shout out to is we are actually on the cusp today of the um, speech pathologist week as our allied health in, in you know people around the world. Um, and I personally want to say a big thank you to speech pathologists because I think they are really underrated and they do a lot of work. And I personally, as a big dyslexic, would not function and would not be able to be on air without speech pathologists. Look at you speaking without a single um, noticeable pathology. (laughs) (laughs) But one in seven individuals have a a communication pathology at some point in their life. And speech pathologists do a lot of unseen work and I want to give them a big shout out because they do some really incredible stuff and they're really clinically skilled and I think they get under-recognised. So that's my little plug for speechies. Yeah, there's a lot of um, those allied health people that kind of go – stay under the radar a bit, don't they? In hospitals, I don't know if people know this, but in hospitals, a lot of people following stroke and even just as we age have difficulty swallowing. And I know Mm. that sounds basic, but it's very dangerous. If you can't swallow properly, you end up choking on all sorts of things and you get pneumonia and it's no good. And speech pathologists are fantastic at assessing people's swallow and determining what sort of food it's safe for them to eat and helping people to swallow safely. And, like, isn't that just such a fundamental thing that we take for granted? It's a basic human right, really. (laughs) Right? Eating, communication, they're pretty simple things. Dr. Patient is just like having a revelation. What is it? Well, my my brain just fried. You can get pneumonia from not swallowing. Yeah, so you can basically you can, like... It's called aspiration pneumonia when you, like... Goes down the wrong pipe. Exactly. It goes down the wrong tube. You choke on something. Mm. It ends up in your lungs. Wow. And if you don't have the strength to then cough it back out, Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, it's really dangerous. All right. On that, <laughs> wow. on that really, you know, happy note, <laughs> we're going to get into our first guests. Um, we are welcoming Liz Dawes, I believe, as recently is an OAM. Look at you, fancy. She is the CEO of um, the RCD Foundation, which is a charity that was started in honour of her son, Connor, um, who had a 16-month battle with brain cancer in his last couple of years of secondary school, and that was in 2013. So the foundation has been running for 10 years now, and I personally can say I've been involved with this charity for that long. I volunteer every year at the massage tents down at Connor's Run, which is their signature um, event, which runs in September. And it's such a beautiful community vibe. It started off as really a grassroots charity of the local Bayside community coming together and supporting this family. And it's now the biggest paediatric brain cancer charity in Australia. And they have some amazing, amazing work that they do. So joining us today is Liz to talk about all of these things. Welcome, Liz. Well, hello, Phoebe. Thank you for inviting me on this morning. No worries. It's great to have you with us. Um, So tell us a little bit about what prompted you to start the RCD and why you feel like it's it's such a mainstay in in the sort of charity sphere of Australia. Well, um, so our son, Connor, sadly passed away from an ependymoma brain tumour in April of 2013. He um, technically had just finished his secondary school, although he really couldn't attend in year 12. 
Um, he was a bigger than life character. He was big in stature. He was 6'3", and always big, always bigger than life. But more than that, he was really bright. His brain defined him from really his very earliest days. Um, we have two other children, also bright, but Connor was unusual, unusual in that I don't remember teaching him how to read. All of a sudden he could read and he loved it. I don't remember him learning how to add numbers, but all of a sudden his brain was working out really complex numerical sort of equations at a very young age. He loved Latin, which was unusual, but he loved it. He was one of three boys doing BCE Latin. He had a rock solid memory. If, if he learned something, then he learned it. He didn't need to sort of rehash it. Uh, never spelled a word wrong in a spelling bee, and that was one of his sort of acclaimed to fames. Um, he had pi memorized to 100 digits. So I think you're getting a picture of him. I must, I must say, though, he wasn't too fussed on being top of class in terms of his academic studies. He just loved learning for learning's sake. So as, as me, sort of a type A personality, I'm like, wouldn't you like to use all of your intelligence and actually you know, try to get the top grades in the in the class. But that that really wasn't a motivation for him. He really loved learning. So he had a big heart. Connor had a massive started. heart and he had oh, oh, a, he, a, had a, he had a massive heart yeah. as well. And that was also he was a kind, gentle soul. Mm. Who knows if I, I don't know, it's weird. I mean we could I know that's not why you have me on here to talk about your sort of spirituality and but did Connor have a premonition? He used to say, I'm not going to university. How did he know that? Anyway, um, but he had a he had a lovely way about him. Um, you know, he had a younger brother and a younger sister. I had the same demographic. My brothers fought constantly. Connor never, ever fought with his siblings. It just wasn't anything he was really interested in. He didn't need to sort of have that sort of dynamic, which in retrospect is so lovely mm. now because, you know, he's gone. So anyway, he, um, in addition to being super, super bright and that brain cancer, you know, is is what felled him is, is sort of this cruel irony. Um, but in addition, he was rowing at Brighton Grammar, not, not the best rower, not the best athlete by any stretch, but he really loved that camaraderie of the boys in the boat. And very uncharacteristically, he ran from our home in the Bayside suburbs to the boat sheds. We happened to be away. He did it. No one knew that he was doing that. That was in September of 2011. Mm. He was diagnosed two months later. So mm. fast forwarding to when he passed, um, all, all of our attention and energy was trying to help him get through that horrible 16 to 18 months after surgery and rehab and chemo and radiation and there wasn't a lot happening. So that also was something that I was aware of that I just felt for what he had, there weren't a lot of options and there wasn't actually a lot of support. There wasn't much being done. Mm -hmm. um, so after Connor passed, somebody suggested we needed to have an event. I was, you know, sad and bereft and somebody suggested we do the run that Connor, his brother said, let's do that run that he did once and that was the genesis for connor's run yeah and that really for me was a way to channel my grief into something i hoped would be positive as a memory to see connor's name yeah um, and for people to continue to say his name it's it's sort of this funny thing that when people pass people are afraid to almost say that person's name around their loved ones. And that's a really, so I always make sure I'm definitely saying the name of loved ones who passed because that they are still a, a person, a memory, an identity, a part of that, that family, that, that person's life. So. And for um, listeners, Liz has just moved her yeah. screen down to show us a beautiful t-shirt she's got on that and says the, Connor's run. And, and the gorgeous. Connor's run t-shirts are iconic. They change every year. So the 2nd September weekend, you will see a massive grey with Connor's run on the trains going back to Bayside oh, <laughs> on a Sunday. And we invite, we invite everybody to join. I think the word run frightens people. <laughs> yeah. No, it's... it's so if, if you dig into the story, like it, it's not about running. Um, it's just about coming out 
Um, it's a lovely course as well. Yeah. I think it's the the most beautiful, not only the most fun, but also the most beautiful run in Melbourne because it's all along the foreshore. It's gorgeous. And, and you know, you might be lucky enough. There is a, a very core group of Connor's mates who do it every year, the Polo Boys in Speedos and their <laughs> Polo Caps. So, you know, you can always improve on the view. It's, it's, it's really so those water polo, Those water polo boys started that when they were 18. Yeah. And, and, and now, now it's, it's not as attractive to see them running along the foreshore. I also think it's also wonderful that Connor's inspiring people to get out and train yeah. uh, for either the walk. And we do definitely encourage walking groups. The Walkers and Talkers, my book club does it every year. It's a really lovely Sunday morning out with your friends and uh, to feel good. And we, I think, you know, Phoebe's done it many times. We, oh no, I don't know. Have you actually done it? No, Phoebe I've always been in the tents. I've always been looking after people at the other end. Well, we've got, um, because we don't care about the running, we just want people to feel entertained. Mm. And so we've got 25 entertainment groups from cheerleaders to, we've got a choir with 200 members. Um, we've got musicians, we've got a dance zone. We've got a brain teaser alley. We've, we've got a Lots of stuff to keep people entertained along the way. Um, and then, yeah, get to the finish, have a wonderful massage, and it's pretty good. feel good. So tell us, Liz, a little bit about what the funds from the RCD are going to at the moment and what are the initiatives you've been using the money for? Yeah, so, again, starting from scratch, uh, I suppose in a way when you start them, something from scratch, you don't have any pre um, – you know, baggage might not be the, the right sky's word. The limit. Yeah. And, and, I, and really, we could carve out what we thought we wanted to do. So we are focusing on pediatrics and young adults. Connor couldn't bear to see young children being radiated when he was being radiated. Um, little four and five-year-olds, it, it literally broke his heart. And that has resonated with me. And I, I felt like, you know, a lot of children who are affected by brain cancer don't you know, they have young parents, uh, young siblings. Uh, they can't give this sort of energy and time. And I was in a unique point in my life when I could, and I still do. Um, and so, yeah. So what we're doing now is really trying to understand the sector. We are making sure every child is diagnosed with a genomics test of their tumor, and we work together with an industry group to make that happen. We partner with the federal government. So we're all about trying to leverage the money we raise as well. We also want to really work closely with other charities to make sure we're not doing what they're doing, but we're coming together to sort of double our impact. And 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 that's been really powerful. We've recently, during COVID, hired a research manager. She's really working for the sector, not just in Australia. You can tell my accent, we're an American family. We have a charity in the US as well. And we are part of the global industry groups who are driving the change in terms of clinical trials, how to make them faster, smarter, better, um, drugs, how to get those screened in, in a way that is uh, you know, uh, quicker and less harmful to the patient, um, the, uh, personalized medicine. There's a lot going on there. We're about to launch a project using the mRNA technology uh, which is really, really fascinating. We've got a big project we're about to help in Queensland and putting that whole thing together. So we've got a, a couple different things we're doing, but we're really trying to get at the crux of why is it the number one disease killer of kids? That's because pretty much every brain tumor is slightly different um, and then needs to be treated, and it's in your brain. And the blood-brain barrier, you know, it's hard to get drugs there. So thinking differently about immunotherapy, CAR T-cells, um, there's a lot going on. So we're trying to fund young researchers. We're trying to fund, uh, we're trying to encourage the groups, the researchers here to do more tissue sharing, data collection. There's a lot going on. I think one of the things I've always been really impressed with, Liz, is that your commitment to really driving it as a direct line of we're not just going to fund the people who are 
and you do, you fund the people who are going through this really challenging pathology in all its forms, but looking at a bigger picture and going, how do we change what the experience is for those families with research? How do we actually impact the sector to move forward for these kids? Because we're not going to stop cancer happening you know, it, it is going to happen. How do we make that experience better than what we went through? And funding PhDs directly, funding a research component at the Royal Children's and really focusing on that moving forward, I think is a really conscious way for a charity to use their money wisely because most people don't know this in Australia, but funding for a PhD is 20 grand a year, right? And if that's, I was 30. And that's amazing, <laughs> right? And so if you're giving that money to a, a direct researcher who's going to invest their early research potential into your, you know, thinking and cause, that can propel them in a, in a research project for 40 years of, of a career. career. defining, yeah. Exactly. And so you actually invest in th- that research flow through, which is really, really valuable. Did you have a question, Yeah, Jess? I just wanted to sort of take a step back and wondered, Liz, if you could tell listeners who might not know, how common is paediatric brain cancer? What are we looking at here? Well, I mean, it is incredibly rare, but it is. And so I, I don't want people to worry if their child has a headache or something's going on. It, You know, the first thing, and that's why it took so long for Connor to be diagnosed. The first thing is not brain cancer. That's not, you know, and, and often a GP may only diagnose one in, in their career. So it is quite rare. But having said that, it is the number one disease killer of young people because young people traditionally don't get sick. Um, Leukemia, more children will get leukemia, but they've done great work in the leukemia space and those kids are surviving. So that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to help children survive longer, but also survive better. Radiation is not good, but it often is the only thing that actually will help the child survive. Um, So it's, it's a bit of a it's it's a bit of a, a a small subset of the population, but a really horrible one. There will be close to 150 young people in Australia that will die this year. And if I think if anybody saw a group of 150 young people and said in 12 months they'll be gone because of brain cancer, you know that just wouldn't feel right. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm really glad to be a spokesperson for the cause. And 10 years on. I feel we're really helping the sector. We're driving not only awareness through Connors Run and our events and, you know, all the ways you bring awareness to to a horrible disease, but we've also gathered the community. So other families going through this um, and, and the ones that really stay in touch with us are our legacy families. We've got close to 30 of them now. We name research in their child's name. They partner with us on what's a priority for them. And that, to me, is really important. I mean, I started this because of Connor. I didn't even think of other families, really, until about two, three years into it and realized these these families, we're, we have to come together. Um, and it is that power of coming together that really does ignite change. Yeah, Dr. Patient. You had a question. I do, Liz. Liz, this is this is fascinating me. Uh, and what <laughs> what I want to know is from from the research uh, that you have funded. What what are some of the most fascinating things that you have found or advanced as a result of everything you've done? Oh well, that's thank you. Um, and 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 I have to say, it's the researchers doing the work. Not yeah. definitely definitely not me. But and and also my understanding is probably you know, the quite, uh, you know, it's not as technical as somebody who's trained in this area. Um, But one of the things I'm most proud of, and I mentioned it before, is the genomics testing. So when we started all this, um, and we were bringing researchers over from St. Jude's in the US, and I was saying, you know, we're saying we've got the biggest event for pediatric brain cancer. Now we need to sort of put our money where our mouth is. What is needed? And he said, oh, you've got to do a genomics test of every tumor. Um, Somebody explained it to me that it used to be like looking down a microscope. uh, But now with the, um, you know, the human genome project, it's it's looking at at things more in 3D uh, way. And that we were able to get the Australia government to partner. And we did a four year trial with a group in Germany. 
And after that, they are now saying that because of this testing, 25%, which is quite a big percentage of children diagnosed will have a, a more informed diagnosis, meaning they will have learned something by doing this genomics testing that they didn't know before. That will either allow them to change treatment protocol, possibly undertreat in some cases where the tumor may not require radiation. And I think of that as a real win. Um, and I'm, I'm really proud of that. I was just with, um, we had an event last night and there, and there was um, a, a woman there whose daughter had just had a surgery two days ago. Um, and they, they literally are getting, it's in a tricky part of the brainstem. So they went in just to actually get a sample so they can understand what's happening. It's a low grade which should be okay, but it's in a tricky spot and they just wanna make sure. And so I'm thinking what we help fund is now going to inform this child's future. And they're gonna actually know 100% what's, what's, what they're dealing with. And it's, it's from charities like yours, I think that, you know, we are starting to understand the role of the genomic process in cancer treatment and not only just in, in who gets these, these conditions, but one of the things people may not be aware of is the fact that there is treatment out there such as IVIGs and, and particular antibody treatment, which if you can isolate the genomic understanding of a particular pathology, you can be incredibly specific with the treatment that goes towards that that tumor and and what a person needs so you're not the analogy that I heard a clinician use once it's not throwing everything under the sun into one pot and hoping that something sticks it's picking the flavor that you want and knowing that that's going to be the right one and and it's not a soup medley it's it's knowing that you can drive home with the the carrots or the celery or whatever it is and that and that that's the right thing for this particular tumor and I think that that's amazing because it's not a a short-term solution in terms of it's amazing you've had 25 percent you know um change with this but to know that this project takes time and years to give enough evidence and enough information to really move the sector forward has so much forethought in it which is really impressive the other thing, another, another, well, just quickly, and mm. another area, and again, can't dive too deeply into it, but is this whole immunotherapy, mm. um, and that's using your body's own defense, just like we do when we're feeling unwell, and because again of uh, the advances in CAR T cells, um, the advances in the mRNA vaccine, um, it's it's really empowering, you know, getting your own body to be able to. And so there's some really fascinating work and not just in brain cancer, but all cancers. So I think what I think what researchers are doing, and of course it makes sense, is they're actually looking what's happening out there. Um, and is there, are there things they can glean from other diseases and treatment and research that can then inform what's happening in our space? Yeah, for, for the listener's sake, the, there's a... Um... A fundamental kind of skill, if you will, of cancer is that it can evade the immune system. So it can stay under the radar and, and not, um, you know, get around the immune system. So if we can find ways to help the immune system figure out that it's the enemy in there, mm. <laughs> that could, yeah, it's a game changer. And particularly in the brain, we're, we're talking about the blood brain, brain barrier is an incredibly hard um, thing to overcome in terms of treatment. It, it's using the body's own mechanisms of getting into that is, is an incredible tool to, to really sort of um, jump over our hurdles in terms of the systemic um, synthetic medications and using the body to fight it in its own way. Ideally with minimal side effects Correct, too. correct. Liz, talk, yeah. we, we've got a few minutes left. Just talk us through one of your, I think I really love, leading into our music, we're going to talk about your music therapy program, which is such a beautiful program. Oh, thank you. So Connor, uh, like I had said, you know, a lover of pretty much anything interesting and quirky and different. And he had a voracious appetite for music of all descriptions. He was a learner driver. We could only drive with symphony music, classical music on. 
Um, and the last show he went to was a rap concert um, and loved everything in between. So after his surgery, he was left with uh, short-term, uh, you know, short-term memory issues, right-side movement issues. Somebody suggested music therapy might be good for him, and I embraced that completely. And we had a lovely woman who came to our house, Sarah Punch, every week. And when Connor passed, and you'll hear RCD mentioned, those are Connor's initials, Research Care Development. I mean, sorry, Robert Connor Dawes. But then we also decided we could use them for what we wanted to really focus on, and that is the research care development. So under that C is our music therapy program. We now have a referral program with all nine children's cancer hospitals across Australia. Um, and we're really proud of that. And that's in-home um, because hospitals do have music therapy in the hospital. But for Connor, it really was nice to have it in your in your home. And now these music therapists can engage, uh, you know, the siblings, the parents. So during Connor's music therapy, he went back and back and back to his favorite song. And I think he was trying to give us all a message. Sorry, sorry. My husband's just walked in. He doesn't know I'm on the radio. Um, so <laughs> sorry, he does now. Um, so the song he kept going back and back and back to was Bob Marley mm. and the three little birds. And if, if, for those of you who don't know the song, the chorus is don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right. And that was a philosophy that Connor loved. And that is something that really has helped when we were starting sort of really grounded us in, in in sort of our branding and our messaging. And so we kick off Connor's run. Everybody sings the Bob Marley song. And um, and it's a really wonderful way to sort of kick things off. And we've got our three little birds. If anybody looks at our logo, mm. we've got our th three little birds, our front and center and everything we do. Yeah, which is fabulous. And we're actually going to, in honor of Connor and, and um, we're, we're going to play that song f now and we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us, Liz. It was, it's been a really great chat. Um, and 10th of September. <coughs> Sorry. 10th correct. Of September. Correct. So in a couple of weeks time, if you're around Fed Square on a Sunday afternoon and you well, feel and like a party... Sorry, can I encourage people to register? Yes. Registrations are actually a bit down post-COVID. Oh. So Connors, connorsrun.com. How long's the run? It's not. You can do two. There's a 9K and there's like an 18K. And can 18K. I say we've done it for 10 years. Every year it promises to rain and every year the minute that the run starts, the rain stops and the sun comes out. Every single year. That's special. Connor only has one job. That's his job. <laughs> yeah. And he's very good at it. So. so we'd love, we really, really warmly welcome everybody to embrace and get around it. We call it a vibe you can't describe. More yeah. fun than run. We promise you will not regret making the decision. To and I it. promise all of our Triple R listeners, if you come up to me at the ra at the massage tents and say I'm I've been listening to radiotherapy, I will personally rub your calves after the run. I will be there. Don't you worry. I can can I just say, Miss <laughs> Perineum gave me a little massage just a few minutes ago because I've got a sore back and it was good. So <laughs> that's a selling point for me. So we're going to go to a song in honor of Connor and some station announcements. And then we're going to come back with our second guest, um, Professor Jeffrey Rosenfeld, and he's going to be talking on another topic in the brain about penetrative injuries, um, which will be another fascinating thing. So thank you very much, Liz, and thank um, you, Liz. hopefully we'll see you on, on in September. Bye. Bye. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. I have the pleasure of welcoming our next guest, Dr. Jeffrey Rosenfeld. I never know exactly how to introduce Jeffrey because he has so many accolades and titles, whether it's professor, doctor or his military rankings. I never know which one takes precedence. So we're going to go with doctor today. In terms of his accomplishments, what we've got him talking about today is his current research. And Jeffrey is one of Australia's senior and experienced military surgeons and he served in eight deployments all over the world. 
Having attained the rank of Major General, Dr. Rosenfeld is also a former Surgeon General of the ADF and he's currently researching treatment of penetrative brain injuries, so things such as bullets and shrapnel, and how that relates to concussion and the treatment um, that the military has for those kinds of conditions. So good morning, Dr. Rosenfeld. Uh, hi, Phoebe. And you've, Thanks for you've inviting come, me on. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Tell us a little bit about the current research and, and how it relates to um, the military in terms of caring for our servicemen and women. Well, the Middle East conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 20 years have uh, a lot of head injuries as a result. And in fact, the so-called signature injury of the Middle East conflicts has been traumatic brain injury. So there's been a lot of research about that, both minor and major, and I've been involved at both ends of the spectrum. And there's a lot of crossover actually into sport concussion research that's going on at the moment as well. Now, one of the things that came out of the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan was how, how do we look after severe traumatic brain injury patients uh, from the moment they're injured to into their rehabilitation phase. And, and the, particularly the Americans, and we've latched on, ha, have done a lot of research in this area. And they produce guidelines about how to manage these injuries in the best way possible. And we've we've learned from these guidelines, we being Australia, and we practice these guidelines, both for penetrating, that's where the bullet in, and blast injuries, bomb blast injuries, but also um, blunt closed head injuries and, and uh, some at the minor end of the spectrum and what that, that does to the brain. So those guidelines were f first written for blast injury and penetrating injury about 20 years ago, actually. Uh, and uh, there was some civilian evidence that went into those guidelines as well. They're evidence-based guidelines. So they're there to guide clinicians in the best way of managing these problems, uh, but because they haven't been updated, we're going to now update them with a with a contemporary version, and that's what I'm involved in at the moment uh, with a group of US um, neurosurgeons uh, and um, ICU physicians and epidemiologists to update these guidelines. Okay. But um, and in terms of the mainly with traumatic uh, severe traumatic brain injury, but. The concussion side of it is is another story, and uh, there's a lot of um, veterans that have come back with PTSD and anxiety and depression and mental health issues, as well as sometimes physical problems from their injuries as well. But there are a lot of mental health issues, and it would seem that there's a connection between traumatic brain injury and mental health. Um, interestingly, what's the sort of, of brain um... that What's the percentage of our deployed servicemen and women who, who are experiencing these kinds of injuries? Uh, the, there's, a, there's a pretty high risk of PTSD for those who deploy when they come back, even in peacekeeping operations, uh, particularly after Rwanda and uh, even in East Timor, you might think, it well, we didn't engage in combat. What risk could that be? But in fact, a lot of the personnel that came back did develop PTSD and, and mental health issues. And we're all trying to work out why is this? If you increase the resilience of the troops before they go away, would that protect them against getting mental health problems? And there's a lot of work going on about how to maybe select out the people that are at risk and try and boost their, their mental health coping strategies before they go or, or indeed not even send them um, in the first place. Um, but a and, prevention uh, is better than cure sometimes. Yeah, That's right. But uh, it would seem that you, you can actually strengthen pe people's resilience, but the actual evidence whether that improves... Um, outcomes and reduces the risk of mental health. That's still still being determined. It's and do you not, think? Not quite. Do you think no, that yeah. our understanding with concussion in the military service is going to be similar to what they're now seeing in the AFL with this delayed presentation um, and people well, sort of coming out of the woodwork? Yeah, it's different in defense in defense um, 
personnel because they're exposed to blast injury, blast head injury, the, the effect of the bomb, the uh, the pressure wave of the bombs, and um, and and sometimes um, bullets uh, actually causes its own injuries to the brain, mm. uh, let alone the physical impact of concussion. You know, if you if you get knocked in the head by by a, by a ball or an elbow or fall on the ground and hit your head on the ground, you'll get a concussion. Uh, but that's different to a bomb blast. Bomb blast actually causes not only throwing people against fixed surfaces like the ground or, or walls because of the, the effect of the bomb blast itself, but then you get the effects of the impact as well. So it's a sort of a, a compound injury. Dr. Russell. Uh, but in sport, um, you you get an impact, and that and that causes the concussion. Mm. Dr. Rosenfeld, good morning. I I had a two part question. Um, in a combat scenario, are there there parts of the brain that can be, for want of a better term, temporarily penetrated by either shrapnel or bullets that can allow the soldier to continue to function? But uh, further to that, what advancements in helmet technology can contribute to better protection? Yeah, it's a good question. So all, all um, soldiers wear protective helmets uh, when they're out in the, out in the field. Uh, and uh, they do give some protection against shrapnel. But if it's a very high-velocity missile, that is a bullet from a, a high-velocity weapon, that, that will penetrate the helmet and go through into the brain usually. Um, but, but certainly the helmet does give some protection against that. It lessens the impact, but it, it certainly um, takes a lot of hits with shrapnel. They're the fragments of the bomb that don't go through right into the, through the scalp and, and into the brain. So the helmets do give give quite a lot of protection, and it's it's essential that, that the soldiers wear them. And they're different from the tin hats that were worn in the First <laughs> World War. Uh, they're they're much more uh, protective with Kevlar. Uh, which is uh, a ballistic protection and also some foamy insert, which lessens the, uh, the sort of pressure wave effect as well. But they're not, and they're not an absolute protection, but they do, they do give quite a lot of protection. And it raises the question of whether, whether footballers should wear helmets as well. What do you reckon? And the, answer, the answer to that is at the moment we, we don't have a helmet that gives great protection in football. Because it's not the same as a as a ballistic injury from a weapon. Uh, if you fall down and hit your head, it's the same with riding. You know, all these scooter riders around town who are not wearing helmets, that they, they should wear a helmet because if they come off their bike and and hit their head heavily on the ground, um, they'll suffer a severe concussion and they may actually suffer a fractured skull and broken scalp and the whole works. Whereas the helmet can protect them from that. In football. Uh, we don't have a helmet that will, in Australian rules football, that will protect the brain against concussion enough to justify wearing them. And the other thing that happens, particularly with young kids wearing helmets in football, is they tend to take more risky uh, tactics in their in their play, um, and, and that makes them even more vulnerable to head injury and, and other injuries because they're they're, they're doing more risky behaviour. So we don't we don't yet have the ideal helmet for Australian rules football. It's not the same as American gridiron where they do wear helmets, but that's a different sort of game where they're they're going in, you know, with their head their head first tackling, and um, it, it's um, much more impact on on the head itself. Whereas in Australian rules football, we've tried to get away from head impacts and and uh, alter the tackling rules to. Um, to try and prevent uh, the, the concussions occurring. And that, that has worked to some extent. Mm. Can I ask, in terms of presentation, we had a show a couple of weeks ago looking at how concussion presents in sport. With the kind of concussion that the military get with this sort of different exposure with blast, um, is there a difference in symptoms that you would look yeah. for? Yes, there's a, there's a much high, higher risk of uh, mental health issues with uh, concussion in the military for a lot of different reasons. But it would seem that the blast itself injures the parts of the brain that regulate emotional control, like the frontal lobes and the temporal lobes and, and affect um, memory and um, thinking and, um, 
and mood as well. So the person can get the playbacks of PTSD and uh, and get very anxious and have panic attacks and depression as well from, is, from those are those, um, are those symptoms transient like other concussions or is it more of a chain reaction that can trigger the presentation of mental health well, conditions? I mean, in, in concussion in sport, about only about 10% of the of the people will go on to get chronic symptoms. 90% will get better within 10 days to two weeks. Uh, but it's different in the military because although they may get over the initial concussion, the PTSD may not rear its head uh, and become obvious for months after, until months after the event, uh, which is strange. But And it can even happen years after the event. The person can develop... PTSD out of the blue many years later. It's a very strange uh, phenomenon, but um, it's it's been well reported yeah. like that. We could go on and on. This is an incredibly fascinating point. Um, unfortunately, we are running out of time. So unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap our conversation with um, Dr. Rosenfeld today. Thank you so much for coming on Radiotherapy and talking to us about this really interesting issue and in your research. We really appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me on. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. It's been really lovely to have you guys in the studio today. I'm going to say uh, something and then we'll say our goodbyes. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> it's training wheels here. It's 10.58. Um, Triple R and the 86 Super Saturday are having a Triple R takeover at Northcote Theatre on Saturday the 28th of October and I want to tell you all about it. Triple R and the 86 are celebrating Melbourne as one of the world's greatest music cities with a Triple R takeover at Northcote Theatre featuring Briggs, Delivery, Kayeet, Normie Row, Party Dozen, and One Three Hundred. Tickets are free, but limited. Yeah. Triple R listeners, get in quick and register register at the 86.com. That's spelt out, not numbers, letters, the 86.com. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I want to go. Yeah. You might need to register, mate. (laughs) I might. Because I don't know how many tickets are left. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. Um, this has been just delightful. So good to see you both. Yeah. It was great to chat all things brain. Wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. My brain's tired now. Yeah. For a Sunday morning. Yeah. And, uh, join see us next soon. week for Radiothon. Oh, Radiothon. Get excited. Wild. Yeah. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.